Welcome to Hope for the Heart. I'm glad you're uh, with us today. Uh, if you have been with us, then welcome back. If you're not, it's the first time, then uh, we are studying the book of Revelation, and uh, we're taking it verse by verse, as, at least as well as we can take it verse by verse. Uh, we're in chapter 5, so if you want to get a copy of, uh, of God's Word and we can read this, I will read it to you, assuming you have a copy in front of you. It's always good to have a copy and to follow along. If you can. So I'll read and give us a context to where we are. We're in Revelation chapter 5. And I'm going to, our text today is verses 5 through 7. It's not just a couple of verses, but I want to give you the, the full context. And I'll begin reading in verse 2. The Word of God reads in verse 2 of Revelation chapter 5. Uh, this is John. He's in heaven. He says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Now, that book we referred to last week as the book of doom. It is a book of judgments, and uh, we'll have more explanation about that a little later. Verse 3, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then verse 7, And he came, he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And so here we are uh, again in chapter 5. The scene in chapter 5 is the same scene that we looked at last week. It's the throne is still in, in the throne of God is still central to the focus of the vision uh, of what John is able to see at this particular time. The cherubim are there, which are the four living creatures. We've, we've uh, labeled them as that. The enthroned elders there representing the, the raptured church are there. Uh, the the, the the display of God's glory is shining all throughout everywhere that John can see. Uh, along with the, the, the lightning and the thunder, we see in the scene the Holy Spirit shining in sevenfold glory. And then we're going to take a look at that again today. And everything around God, everything being offered to God in worship. And then chapter 4 ends with the glorious scene on the throne and, and, and all of the, the redeemed and the raptured men and the spirits and the saints and the angels are all worshiping God. And then we have this scene in chapter 5, and it's a new action is introduced, and the central character is introduced as well. God himself begins to stir and to move. And so we, we begin to see this activity, which is, now remember now, the earth has already experienced the rapture. Uh, they may not know it as a rapture. They will probably know it as something else. Uh, for sure, they will not understand what the rapture was, but there will be people missing. But in heaven, above the earth, it is getting ready for something else. It is getting ready for the judgments that will become known to earth very soon. And, uh, and so that time period of time is known as the tribulation period. And then the second three and a half years, the second half of that is called the great tribulation period. And that's where we're going to see so much of this judgment in that period of time. So as you come to chapter 5, this new uh, action is introduced. Uh, and you, you begin to see what John is seeing. 
Uh, the throne is still in vision. God is beginning to act. And the first thing he does is noted in verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that is God, the scroll written inside and on the back and sealed up with seven seals. And so we called this uh, last week that this scroll is actually a book. This It's a title deed to the universe. God has it, and it is rightfully his. It is the official document that grants the created universe to God by ownership. Now, I understand that that's hard for us to understand. But this is a ceremony that is going on in heaven, and it is a, uh, a declaration of the fact that Christ is taking back control of the earth. The contents of the scroll are sealed inside of it, and a summary of it is written on the outside, and John recognizes that. The contents of the scroll will be known to us as we begin to read chapter 6, where the Lamb will break one of the seven seals. In fact, over in chapter 6, you'll see the very first verse. And I saw when the Lamb, which is the Lamb here in this chapter 5, broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures, that's the cherubim, saying with a loud thunder, come. And so we see that the... The lamb is very much involved in this, and so are the cherubim involved in this. And so, when he breaks his seal, things begin to happen. Now, this scroll, or this book, again, is when it's fully unrolled, does not describe the why the universe belongs to God. It would just be too much to explain why. But how he's going to take back the earth. That's what this book is. It is describing the how, and how is it going to take place? Through judgments. The scroll doesn't have the why. It has the how. And when it's unrolled, it doesn't tell us why God owns it. It tells us how he's going to take it over. It's really a moot point of why he owns it. We don't even have to go there because we know why he owns it. He created it. He made it. He is God. And so in this book, as it were, it's in the hand of God. It contains the judgments by which God, in a very short time, will take possession of the created earth and restore it to a condition that we would call paradise or a return to the conditions of, of Eden. And then there are judgments that will unfold. This scroll it begins in chapter 6 and runs all the way through chapter 19. So we're almost in chapter 6 where this judgment will begin. So the question that comes is this. God has a scroll in his hand, but who is worthy to open it? In fact, this is where we left off last week. John is, uh, doesn't see that uh, because the strong angel proclaims who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals in verse 2 of chapter 5. And so John begins to weep in, ver in verse 4. And, and so the strong angel is proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? And so there is no one found in the search to open it. So John is weeping because he wants to see uh, what he believes. And I think John understood what this book was. I think he wants to see the world change and to, to see the world rid of evil and sin and, and to see the kingdom of God coming to earth and, and God setting up his kingdom. He wants to see uh, sin and shame and guilt done away with. He wants to see Satan bound, and he wants to see all of Israel saved. He wants to see Christ exalted. He wants all those things that have been promised, but he doesn't understand, and so he's weeping. And so the elder says, stop weeping. And so we move from uh, searching uh, to the section of the one who's actually located there because the elder says, look. And so he, he stops and he does look. And notice he says, behold. 
In verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping, behold. That actually just means, look, stop weeping, look. There is someone found. Uh, because it, because of the scene and because of what he sees, he will begin to understand that. Now, we don't have any more indication from John of, of the, of the uh, scene as, as he sees it other than to describe the scene. In other words, he's not uh, uh, telling us that he's crying or he's weeping or he's getting answers. He's just describing the scene. So he calls his attention to the emerging person on the scene. And this is what he says. Look, stop weeping. Look, uh, look the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. And I'll stop right there because that is a, a point that needs to be looked at just briefly. And I, I can't cover all of this, but the scriptures are full of this being a messianic title. Both of these phrases are messianic titles. We know uh, we can go all the way back to Genesis 12, but there's several, I think it's eight different times between Genesis 12 and Genesis 49. Uh, for example, in Genesis 49, 8 through 10, one of the earliest titles for the Messiah is from the tribe of Judah, lion from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49, 8 refers to that particular phrase. So Judah is a lion, and Judah will produce a lion who will have the scepter, uh, who will rule, bring about the rule, shall cause the nations to bow down. The Messiah, then, is to become known as the lion that would come from the tribe of Judah. That's just known throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the Jews, even in the time of Christ, expected their Messiah to be a lion. But you can imagine how confused they were when they never really understood what Jesus was saying because he did not appear that way. They expected the lion to come uh, uh, to destroy the Romans, destroy the Greeks, and to, to destroy the pagans. And that is partly why they killed him because he was not lion-like. Uh, there was nothing fierce about him. There was nothing devastating, menacing, or destructive about him. Quite the opposite, really. Uh, he was meek and lowly. Uh, he was not someone who was going to take over politically, and that's what they saw. Their Messiah would be a lion, and their Messiah would rip and tear and destroy the enemies. What they didn't realize is that he actually really was a lion indeed. But his lion-like character, which we see here in this section, known as the judgments that we're still waiting on, that John is about to see, is yet to come, but the Messiah was to be a lion from the tribe of Judah. But then he gives another designation. It says, Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And So the root of David is another messianic title, and it's from the Old Testament. Isaiah 11.1 1, uh, refers to this, uh, this particular phrase as we have seen it. And so we know that these two are messianic titles. And uh, in fact, really, the last 20 chapters of the book of Isaiah talk about the uh, redoing of the earth and the, the kingdom setting up on earth and the conditions of the earth changing. And in that, he mentions some eight or nine times about Christ being from the line of David. So every Jew expected that. They expected when the root of David came, he would come with force, he would come with a rod, he would come in destruction, devastation, he would come and would force the wicked of the earth to succumb to his authority. He would judge sinners. He would be from the royal blood of David. He would be out of that Davidic line. And we've seen that 
with the, the uh, genealogical looks that we have, you know, particularly in the book of Matthew. And so in the end of Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus himself says, I am the root and offspring of David. Uh, but because the prophecy in Isaiah was associated so much with destruction, they could not recognize their Messiah. So they only recognized him briefly, and I don't even, uh, there's a lot more to say about uh, on the day that they began to uh, hail him as, as the coming king, and that was Palm Sunday, singing, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But by just a few days later, they were ready to crucify him, not as a victor, but as a victim. So they had seen him go through a mock trial, never asserted any power. They played him, and toyed with him, the Romans did. and So he wasn't really king-like. They didn't see a king there. This is no shoot out of the royal line. This is no blue blood. Why doesn't he take his authority and set up the kingdom as he described? And this confused them. They could not see who was standing right in front of them. He wasn't like a king. And because he didn't act like a king, they killed him. Because he didn't act like a lion, they killed him. But John sees something here. And he sees that uh, what this elder is asking him to see. But it says something else here that he has overcome. The elder says, he has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. In other words, he is worthy. This is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the rightful king from David's loins, loins, both through Mary and Joseph. And so he has told the people when he first came that he, would, that he could and have done if he had wanted to do that. He said, if I could have called for a legion of angels to come to my rescue, uh, they would have come. There would have been a whole matter of overcoming sin and Satan and demons, overcoming death, overcoming hell, that all still had to take place. So as Jesus moves toward the cross, for example, in John chapter 12, it says, judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. So you can see, just by me mentioning this, that so much is involved in this scroll. So much is involved in this book. And who is the rightful person who can actually open the book? Because you see at this time, and this is what's confusing to most people, Satan has been given the power and authority over this earth. And so Christ is going to take it back through the judgments. And all of this has been the plan of God since before the foundations of the earth were even laid. 16th chapter of John, in verse 11, the Spirit convicts the judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. That is anticipating the cross. So the first thing Christ had to do before he conquered the nations of the world, before he came as a fierce lion and king, was to go into mortal combat with Satan uh, because of uh, what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. He held the power of death. He keeps all humanity in bondage all their life long. He is the usurper that will rule the world. It was he who had been running rampant with his demons all over the earth. But the death of Christ took care of that. And that was first predicted in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I know I could, I could go into all of this explanation about that. And most of you probably know that. But the judgment was set. The elder says the lion who is from the tribe of David, or the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. He has overcome. Colossians says it this way. He delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us 
to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what the cross is able to do. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins and uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him when he overcame. And so we know he's overcome and having forgiven uh, us of all our transgressions, transgressions, and he has made a public display having triumphed over them. He's conquered the demons. He's triumphed over all the demons and Satan himself. He's conquered them at the cross. He's conquered sin. He delivered us into his own kingdom. And so it is essential for us to understand that he couldn't be the lion of judgment and he couldn't be the king of glory until he had first been a lamb. In fact, that's why I'm calling this today, the the title of today's message is The Lamb is the Lion. Now, they never saw him as a lion. They saw him as a lamb and did not even realize he was a lamb. John by now knows the overcomer by way of the uh, of what he has seen and what he knows. Remember, he's, he's one of the apostles. John knows who he's looking for. He's not disappointed when he turns to see verse 6. I saw between the throne the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits sent into all the earth. The scene here is such a powerful scene. It's one that we can't even fathom what he is actually seeing here. But remember that he is seeing Christ. The elder who speaks to him says, look. And this scene is an amazing scene. You remember now, the backdrop to all this is this diamond glowing uh, glory around God that's uh, bouncing off of this crystal platform intermingled with the flashes of lightning and the crackling of thunder throughout all this uh, this seen in heaven. We can't even imagine. The flesh could not even stand all this. Now, we, we said Ezekiel uh, says it's like spinning wheels of light through the 24 elders upon which are seated on the 24 thrones. And in amazing glory and, and splendor, the majesty of this scene, his eyes are drawn in between all of this and he sees between this whole focus of all that is there, between what John sees and what Ezekiel sees and what Daniel sees, man, he sees and he comes into focus. He sees a lamb. He probably was looking for what? A lion or maybe a king. But in the midst of the saints enthroned, or the, which is the church, and the glorious cherubim that we've already labeled them, someone moves to the throne. Is it a lion? Nope. It is a lamb. It's not just the a lamb, it's a, uh, it's a lamb that is used to identify the way the Greek writes this, is it's a little lamb. Uh, actually, it's better rendered a pet lamb. Now, that's fitting because you remember in the Old Testament history, in the Passover, the Jews, the head of the house, had the task of during the Passover to select a lamb to be offered, to sacrifice. They were to take the blood and put it over the, uh, the, the doorpost to protect them. But they had to find a lamb, the best lamb they could find, bring it into their home and keep it four days. And for four days, that little tender lamb lived with the family, as uh, John MacArthur describes it, uh, quoting uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse. He says, four days, that little precious lamb lived with the family. Four days, they snuggled, cuddled the lamb. Four days, they took care, fed, cleaned the lamb, and it became the pet for any children in the house, and it became a pet for the household. 
and then it was violently slain. So God was sending them a message through that symbolism that the one who is the ultimate lamb will be one who is precious, and the slaying of that lamb would be the sacrifice. It would be it would not have been as near a sacrifice, particularly to bring in a strange lamb and just slay it, but the one who had become a pet. And so John looked and he saw, as it were, a pet lamb. Not a lion, but a lamb. And this lamb is the lion. So these are just a few references of the Bible, as you probably know, uh, refers to uh, the lamb, Christ being a lamb. In Isaiah 53, we see that described as a lamb before his shearers. The Messiah is the Lord, the sacrificial lamb. We see it in Jeremiah eleven nineteen. We see it in, in, in several other passages. We come into the New Testament, and remember, in John chapter 1, uh, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we see it in other uh, places. But it's not very often we, we actually find that phrase, except here. This term, Lamb, then, is only used concerning Christ about six times throughout the Scriptures until you get to Revelation. Now, in the book of Revelation alone, it is used 28 times, which tells you it really is a very important key title for the Son of God in this letter, meaning the Lamb. Now, this is not just any Lamb, as we have said. You'll notice this Lamb is standing. It's important that He's standing. He's alive. He's moving. He sees Christ as the figure of the Lamb, and He's on His feet. He's moving. But also, this Lamb is standing as if slain, means he bears all of the marks or death wounds, the death wounds that the lambs are still visible that he received from the from the cross. So the powers of earth and hell have come together to kill the lamb by God's predetermined counsel. They killed him in the last great conflict on earth, but he is alive. John sees him as alive. Of course, this is not the first time John saw him uh, also after the resurrection, so... But this is what he sees. He sees him. He bears all the marks. And so Jesus shows, uh, is showing him by his appearance there that he is very much alive. And so you, you look at this and you see Christ is referred to as the Lamb. But you also see Satan in chapter 12 of Revelation described as a dragon. And so I know that uh, one writer brings this out. You mean this Lamb is going to come out against a dragon? against all of the demons of, of hell, and this lamb is going to stand against them? And the answer would be, yes, he will. Uh, some would say, well, that he, there's no way he could win, but he can win. Uh, I've already told you, he, doesn't, he didn't lose the first time. He won. The rule of this world has been judged. The kingdom of darkness has had its power broken. The dominion of sin is shattered. The kingdom of darkness has been invaded, and millions of souls have been taken captive into the kingdom of light. So what he did on the cross cost him his life, but he didn't lose it. He disarmed the principalities and the powers. He descended into hell, as it were, and pronounced his triumph over them. And we find that in First Peter. No, he didn't lose. He won, and he'll win again. So this first time he came as a lamb, he died. He redeemed us. He redeemed us by paying a price that was necessary. Uh, we could never have been redeemed by silver and gold, but only by the precious blood as of the Lamb, the unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That's what Peter says. So, with this in mind, he comes. But I want you to notice something else. I'm going to try to get through all of these little things. He, uh, it says in, in verse 6, I saw 
the Lamb slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. So the Lamb moves toward this final conflict, looking back at verse 6. This interesting term, he had seven horns. Now what does that mean? Well, animals had horns, uh, and in the animal kingdom, a horn always represents power because it's what the animal uses them for to exert their power in, in battle or in fight or in survival. Animals who had horns used those horns to inflict wounds on their enemies. So a horn became the symbol of power in the animal world. Very often in the scriptures, uh, Christ is referred to as the perfect power. Seven horns simply means uh, perfect. Seven being the number of perfection or completion uh, would means perfect power. He had he is the sovereign, almighty God, all-powerful. Uh, he was coming as a little pet lamb and very unusual one with seven horns. That is having a perfect power or a sovereignty even though he is being looked at here as a pet lamb. Then it says he has seven eyes. And again, being the number of perfection or completion, the seven uh, speaks of that and also speaks of knowledge, understanding, or omniscience. So he could and comprehend, he can see and comprehend everything. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what to do. He has the preeminent power to do it. So we see all of this very descriptive of Christ as yet, John is seeing this in real time. And so there is a sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit, again mentioned, and we've already covered that as a picture of uh, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 2. Uh, again, uh, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is mentioned this time in reference to the knowledge for judgment. The fullness of the Spirit in chapter 1 was in relation to grace and peace. In chapter 4, verse 5, the fullness of the Spirit was in acting judgment, but here is the fullness of in relation to omniscience as he searches the earth for uh, the, the unbelievers to be dealt with through judgment. So it's quite an interesting note that he sees here. But I want you to know that this monumental moment is described also by Daniel. Uh, look at what it says. He says he has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits sent out into all the earth. But then notice what verse 7 says. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now get this. This is... God, the Father, sitting at the throne, and Christ is coming to receive this book. This book is what we called last week this book of doom or this book of judgments on how he's going to take back the earth. But I want you to notice, if you, if you, you can just write this down. You don't need to turn there. But Daniel chapter 7, I want to read you something in Daniel chapter 7. It says this, the Word of God says in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. That's what we see here in in verse 7 of Revelation, of of Revelation chapter 5. He came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. In other words, Daniel is actually seeing this same scene. It's exactly the same. He sees one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. That's another, that's a way of describing God the Father on that throne. And he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, which or sovereignty, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Now that is another way of saying that he is given all of that because that's what the book is. That's what's inside that book. 
And so the Son of Man comes. He comes up to the Ancient of Days. Here he sees the second member of the Trinity, one like the Son of Man, coming up to God. He was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and the kingdom. It's the same scenario. It just doesn't mention the little scroll or the book. It says, here comes the Son of Man. He comes up to the he comes, here comes the Lamb, and he comes up to the throne of God, and he was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That's all the peoples. That's how, that's how broad this is. All the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is everlasting. Dominion will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that cannot be destroyed. So Daniel sees this same scene in heaven. I can't imagine what that scene actually was, or to be in the presence of that. But here it is, folks. We are going to be there because we are represented here by the 24 elders upon 24 thrones. That represents the church. And if that represents the church, that means the true church of the born, all born-again believers in Christ before the rapture. That's us. We are. It's describing what we are going to see in, in this scene, I cannot imagine the the power of that scene to realize in, in your seeing this, you of course you will be in a glorified body, but you will be able to you will understand that this is real. You know, we look at it now and the way I see people acting and living, uh, all of us, it's like we don't really believe it's real. I mean we know it's real, but it's not like it's real, real. Well, let me tell you, John sees something that is very real, and it's going to really happen. It's, it's, for, it's for sure, and then he sees this, and you would expect the next verse to say he fell down as dead, which he does actually in Daniel. But in here, it triggers something. It triggers uh, a, just a, 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 a tremendous last part to this chapter. It, tr- it triggers a doxologies of praise uh, that is going to just burst out in heaven. And we're going to see it. Look how verse 8, I'll just give you just a, snitch, a smidgen of it. Verse 8 of Revelation chapter 5, And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures, that's the cherubim, the 24 elders, that's the church, look at what happens. Fall down before the Lamb, each one having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sing, or they sang a new song. And he gives you the words. And we're going to take a look at those words because the words are incredible. We're going to sing those words to the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. I can't even imagine what that is. Folks, this is a a, a powerful thing. And as I look at the world around us, and I'm looking at this study, we are so close to that happening. I hear almost daily of people predicting that the rapture could be any moment, and it can. But let me tell you, we're not going to know the day or when it's going to happen. We're not going to know who the Antichrist is. I've heard everything from, they they think the Pope is the Antichrist. They think so many others are the Antichrist. Well, guess what? I don't think we as Christians are going to ever know. It's going to happen after, and I think he'll be revealed after we have been raptured out of this earth. This is getting so good. I can't wait to finish uh, right here, and then next week look at the praise and the worship that just burst out into heaven, and you'll see just how broad it is and how, 
how spectacular that is. And then we get into chapter 6, the beginning of the judgment. So I pray you'll stay with us, continue to read this, continue to study this, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks again for joining Hope for the Heart.